Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Two Christians both had what doctors said was terminal cancer. Both had treatment to try and slow the rotten thing down. Both prayed for healing. One believed there's no definite promise of healing in the Bible this side of heaven. So they prayed, please heal me, Lord, if it's your will. They think it's unwise to demand more of God than Jesus asked in Gethsemane. Father, take this cup away from me, yet not my will but yours be done. The other had a different theology of healing. Not quite name it and claim it, but they know God is powerful to heal. So they must believe God for healing and speak only words of affirmation about the situation. What do such sick people need? One thing to spring to my mind is a theology of healing. Could be you think Anglicans are mainly too wimpy about prayer for healing. Or perhaps like me, you think saying God will heal if only we believe enough is biblically skewed and pastorally risky. Either way, we tend to think the sick need a proper theology of healing. And I'm here to tell you there's something they need more than correct theology. Now, you couldn't attend St Michael's without knowing, I believe, doctrine matters. But Job tells us there's something we need more than orthodox theology. So far in the book, we've seen Job lose just about everything in repeat tragedy. All his stock, all his kids, all his health. And the text clearly says he did nothing to deserve it. And now most of the rest of the book is a debate in poetry between Job and his friends about the cause of his suffering and the potential for remedy. So far, before these chapters 15 and 16, Job has not cursed God, contrary to Satan's prediction, but he has cursed the day of his birth, we heard last week, and wishes he was dead. And he just wants God to address his unjust suffering. Last week, Eliphaz began diplomatically saying suffering can be corrective. Implication, confess your sins, Job, and things get better. Bildad the Blunt came next. He basically says God zapped Job's kids because they'd sinned against him. A sensitive guy, obviously. And then he claims, surely God does not reject a blameless man. And Job replies that sometimes good people suffer terribly and bad guys get away with it. And you would have think the other three had noticed this. And then Zophar comes and says, look Job, you can't hide from God, but if you repent and devote yourself to God, well, surely life will be brighter. Just try harder. But Job, he keeps appealing to God, or anyone for that matter, to point out what he's done so wrong to deserve what's happened. Indeed, he insists, chapter 13, verse 16, that he wants to take the risk of defending himself to God's very face. And now we get to round two of the debate. Eliphaz is back for the prosecution in chapter 15. 
You see, this is not just a debate about ideas. It's really personal. The three friends are so sure Job has done something wrong and they're trying to make him admit it before God, but sadly, they're acting like the prosecution. So let's have a close-up on Eliphaz. And the first thing to note is he's judgmental, judgmental. He's run out of patience, verse 2. Would a wise person answer with empty notions or fill their belly with a hot east wind? Would they argue with useless words, with speeches that have no value? But you even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. You're a windbag, Job, full of hot air. And by denying a link between sin and suffering, well, Job, you undermine piety because people will think being good doesn't really matter. There's no point to it. And so then in verses 5 and 6, Eliphaz tries to point out to Job what he's done to deserve his suffering. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not mine. Your own lips testify against you. Now, here's the irony. It's really Eliphaz just there who has condemned Job. In his effort to identify the sin that caused Job's suffering, Eliphaz has just blamed Job's questioning of God. His words here. But stop and think about that for a moment. Eliphaz's theory is that Job's troubles were caused by his sin. But the only alleged sin Eliphaz points to happened after his sufferings. Not before. And we readers know the whole prosecution rests on a fallacy. The verdict from chapter 1 and 2 was crystal clear. Job was upright. By God's grace, he really did fear God and shun evil. And friends, this is a huge warning to us not to be judgmental. You know, we might think we know all about a situation but we should not jump to conclusions, let alone pronouncing final judgment on another person. And to compound it here, Eliphaz adopts the tactic of playing the man, not the ball. This saying comes from football, where if a player can't keep up with an opponent's skill level, he simply hacks at his legs in a tackle. A similar dirty tactic in debating is to insult the opponent instead of producing evidence on the actual topic. Look at Eliphaz from verse 7. Are you the first man ever born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on God's counsel? Do you have a monopoly on wisdom? What do you know that we don't know? What insights do you have that we don't have? But you see, none of Eliphaz's rhetorical questioning of Job actually addresses the issue of whether Job has any particular sin to confess. Now, friends, if we get caught into debates, you must resist the temptation of playing the man, you know, to call people names, uh, to label them heretics or degenerates or just ignorant. It's so often a cheap shot. And then we come to misusing doctrine. It's possibly Eliphaz's worst mistake, misusing doctrine. 
he takes true doctrine and misapplies it. Verse 14 to 16, it's the doctrine of, we call it, total depravity. What are mortals that they could be pure, or those born of woman that they could be righteous? If God places no trust in his holy ones, if even the heavens are not pure in his eyes, how much less mortals who are vile and corrupt, who drink up evil like water? And of course, this is not the only part of the Bible to say mankind is corrupt, that we all sin. But total depravity does not mean we're as sinful as we can be. And it doesn't mean we can never do any good. Rather, it points out that humans are dead in sin, unable to save ourselves. Every part of us is affected by sin and we cannot merit salvation by our own effort. And so Eliphaz is pretty orthodox on this point. Next to God's holiness, no one is pure. But he misuses the doctrine by using it to write Job off as vile and especially deserving of judgment. But friends, true biblical preaching matches human depravity with God's grace. So though we are marred by sin, every human remains precious to God. And Eliphaz should never have forgotten that about Job. But that's not the only doctrine he abuses. Because for the rest of the chapter, he just bangs Job over the head with judgment. From verse 20, he says, Here's what wise people like me have observed. All his days, the wicked man suffers torment, the ruthless man through all the years stored up for him. It is true that the wicked will suffer in the judgment. What is not true is that it happens immediately and consistently all through our earthly days. In fact, the Bible says the worst judgment comes on the final day. But Eliphaz generalises about judgment to hit Job while he's down. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, but he deliberately picked as examples the very things that have already hurt Job. Verse 21, marauders attack. Verse 28, houses crumble. Verse 29, the loss of riches. And verse 30, the fire consumes. And the insensitivity to how Job lost his flocks and his children is incredible. Friends, God's judgment is a reality. It's a reality foolishly denied in the modern world. But we are not to be judgmental like Eliphaz or to gloat in judgment. In any zeal to defend this doctrine, remember that it is not for us to pronounce the specific or final judgment on other humans. That is for God alone. Well, let's now turn to Job's lonely defence. In verse 2 of chapter 16, he calls his debating partners miserable comforters, a lot of them. And so he's not mincing words either. In verse 3, in fact, he throws Eliphaz's long-winded insult back in his face. Although in verse 4 he shows some empathy, admitting that 
He probably could be like them if he was in their shoes. But by implication, he suggests they have totally failed to put themselves in his shoes and to offer any relief. And so he is alone. And if you've been the victim of insensitive friends, I'm so sorry for that. And all the more if it was from Christians like me failing to comfort you. It's such a lonely path. But worse still, Job feels defenceless before God. Look at verse 7. Surely God, you have worn me out. You've devastated my entire household. You've shriveled me up and it has become a witness. My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponents fasten my opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. Back in chapter 15, verse 25, Eliphaz implied that Job shook his fist against God in all his questioning. But actually here Job says it feels like God has attacked him. In verse 7, my household. Verse 8, my shriveled health. Verse 11, he's turned me over to the ungodly. And it could be some of you sympathise with feeling so defenceless. But Job maintains his innocence. Verse 15. I've sewed sackcloth over my sin and buried my brow in the dust. My face is red with weeping. Dark shadows ring my eyes. Yet my hands have been free of violence and my prayer is pure. So Job is saying that his sackcloth is the garment of grief, not penitence. He's weeping about his losses, not his sins. In his life as a farmer and businessman and father, he asserts from verse 17 that he's not been violent or unjust in his dealings with others, that his prayers have been pure. And so he refuses to admit some crime he does not believe he's committed just to get his friends off his back. Now, once again, it's important to realise Job's not claiming to be perfect. Back in chapter 14, uh, from verse 1, in words quoted actually in our funeral service that I used at the start today, Job admits human frailty and impurity, that we're mortal, that we all face the death sentence. And later in chapter 14, verses 14 and 15, he wonders about life after death, but says for us to enjoy any afterlife, verses 16 to 17, that we would need God not to keep track of our sins, even though he can count all our steps. So Job knows our sin needs to be covered over. His point in this debate is that he did no particular gross sin that deserved the suffering he copped. So he can't see why he should suffer like he was for what we might call his relative innocence. Now, of course, as Christians looking back from the other side of the cross, we can see that Job as an innocent sufferer 
is perhaps a blueprint for Jesus. No one could convict Jesus of any crime either. That's why they had so much trouble convincing the Roman governor Pilate to execute him. But far, far more than Job, Jesus was truly and completely innocent, not just of major sin, but of any sin at all. And yet, so like chapter 16 here, say verse 10, on the cross he was jeered, he was struck by soldiers, he was pierced. And the experience of God's anger, which Job says he felt, verse 9 here, was even more powerfully felt on the cross, where the Bible says Jesus bore God's wrath at the sins of the world. The innocent Jesus suffered not for his sin, but so the guilty can go free. But come back to Job. He feels let down by friends and defenceless before God, And yet he clings to hope that he's not alone. Which brings us to key verses. Job 16, verse 19. Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God... On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. And so despite his despair, Job desperately believes there must be someone in heaven on his side fighting for his cause. He uses three words, witness, advocate, intercessor. The first two particularly refer to the idea that there must be someone on high who's seen the truth and can testify about it. The third word looks at this person as a mediator. A mediator or intercessor is a go-between who, verse 21 says, can plead Job's case to God. Job knows that what he needs is not the theological platitudes of his earthly mates, but the radical friendship of someone in high places. And despite it all, he is convinced that ultimate justice exists in the world God has made. And so he believes this intercessor must somehow exist to supply it. And so we know that there is no mistake in his belief, that it's not just fleeting, he repeats it in chapter 19. And verses 25 and 6. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I've got to be careful not to read our fully developed New Testament theology of bodily resurrection back into these verses. Yet here Job is certain that his Redeemer is alive, which gives him post-mortem hope. 
his skin may be destroyed and yet in his flesh, in his body, that is, again, he will see God. In other words, it's not just some ghostly existence after, some vague merging with eternity. Job believes that through his Redeemer, he will experience some sort of personal reconstitution. And in fact, Job 19 is far closer to resurrection hope than many Old Testament scholars like to admit. Who is this Redeemer? Job says he knows he's alive. And that's my last point. We need to know our Redeemer. Many of the Old Testament scholars say Job must have been thinking of God himself when he said his Redeemer lives. After all, in promising the great rescue from slavery in Egypt, God says in Exodus 6 and verse 6, I will redeem you. I'll buy you back. And here in chapter 19, it's God whom Job hopes to see. And yet, back in Job 16, he felt like God has been his attacker. How can God be both enemy and rescuer? And when Job called for a friendly intercessor in heaven, it was so that person could plead with God. And so is the Redeemer a third party or God himself? It's the New Testament that resolves this mystery with its Trinitarian teaching that in Jesus, God the Son took on flesh and came among us. Romans 8 and verse 34 asks, Who is he that condemns? No one. Since, quote, Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In Jesus, friends, we have an intercessor who's alive. And so 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 says, If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's Jesus who fulfills all Job's hopes. Our Redeemer is God himself, come amongst us in the flesh. In Jesus, we have a friend in high places by his innocent suffering for us. He's earned the right to plead our case before God, offering his righteousness in place of our sin. Friends, that's what people need when they're sick or suffering. They need Jesus himself. I have strong views about a theology of healing. But what we need is Jesus himself. Not abstract theory. Not to be told to confess your sins. We need people to help us hang 
on to Jesus. When all seems lost, we need someone to say, your Redeemer lives. He lives. He's conquered the grave. And you'll see him again in heaven. Oh, friends, don't rush to judgment. Rush to be a friend who points to the friend. Amen.